0: Fancy a drink? How about a side of research? Or a pint of science? Hello and welcome to the first full episode of Branch Out for 2021 with me, Rose Kerr. To kickstart the new season, we are teaming up with Pint of Science – a festival dedicated to celebrating the exciting work scientists are up to in Australia. Branch out is joining in on the fun by having a virtual sit-down with a scientist and asking them what they've been researching and why.
1: So um, I'm Andrea Westerband and you can just call me Andrea. And um, my title is a field ecophysiologist.
0: Andrea's research is pretty specific, and given this is pint of science, I had to start by asking her how she explains it to someone in the pub. That is an absolutely wild title. <laughs> how would you describe that title to someone like in the pub?
1: Mm, yeah, so um I study the way that plants function in terms of Their processes. So um, think about the way that they lose water, the way that they photosynthesize, the way that they invest their nutrients. So it's all of those different aspects. And it's field because I do it outside in the forest or in the grassland out in the field. How on earth do you manage to study such specific things actually Mm. out in the field? Right. So this is a great question that I get all the time. And so we actually have some very sophisticated equipment that we take out with us that allows us to do things like measure the rate of photosynthesis or how much um, water leaves are losing. And so we're able to take these really sophisticated pieces of equipment out with us. To look at these different processes in real time, that's a really big component of what I do, is not just bringing things into the lab, but actually going to where the plants are and studying them there. Um, And that way we get a much more realistic understanding of what they're doing out in their natural environment. Why would you need to study those kinds of things about a plant? So one of the key reasons is because those different um, physiological processes help determine how well plants grow and whether they're going to survive in a given environment over a long period of time. And so if we study, for example, how well they respond to a drought um, by holding the water in their leaves, that's going to give us a really good indicator of whether that species is going to be able to survive in that location in the future, or if it gets much more um, droughted or more severe drought. Right now, we don't have a particular location per se, but we're studying how plants are um, optimizing their photosynthesis across a whole range of environments in Australia. So we've been targeting lots of different locations that have very different environmental conditions. So what that means is they're either very, very dry locations or they have very high soil fertility or very low fertility because we really want to understand how plants are changing their photosynthesis across all of these different locations. Thinking
0: about the way that photosynthesis works, what aspects of the photosynthesis process can a plant change
1: Mm. in order to survive better? Right. And so this is really where the conceptual side of things comes in. And so a lot of the work that I do, it brings into um, or it bridges the gap between ecology and microeconomics. So we try to borrow from principles of economics just to understand how plants are investing their resources. So oh, what so cool. I yeah, so what I mean by that, just a little more specifically, is that plants can um, basically change the way that they're using water and nitrogen during photosynthesis. So when plants open their pores in their leaves, these are small pores known as stomata, that allows carbon dioxide to come into the leaf. But at the same time, water escapes. And so there's this constant push and pull or tug of war. Plants have to decide how they're going to photosynthesize. Are they going to allow that water to escape, or are they going to hold their water? And so what I do is study the rate of photosynthesis, but then I also look at how much nitrogen is in the leaves. And so by looking at those two things together, I can kind of understand what are the underlying factors that help regulate photosynthesis. That's so
0: interesting. I feel like, you know, when you're in high school or whenever you learn about photosynthesis, you don't realize that there's so many different ways that a plant can regulate and change that Mm. process.
1: And so actually, it's interesting that you say that because even a lot of scientists, this is not a really um, historically popular area of study. So we Mm. actually know very little about all of the different components that regulate photosynthesis. Typically, people in the past have just uh, studied the rate of photosynthesis itself, but not looked at all of these other pieces and definitely not have applied um, these ideas of economics to this problem. Why do
0: you think people have been hesitant to study it in the past?
1: Um, Well, I think uh, probably because we just didn't have a, a strong conceptual theory for it the way that we do now. And so in the early 2000s, there was this theory that was developed known as least cost theory. Um, And there have been a couple of studies that have shown that there is evidence to support this theory. And the theory is just describing what I did a moment ago about the rate of photosynthesis and the underlying factors that control photosynthesis. Um, But because we didn't um, have that really strong conceptual background or the strong theory, it's been difficult to test quantitatively what plants should do in a given environment so Mm. you know we didn't have necessarily a good prediction for the way that photosynthesis should work in a given environment but now we do that's so interesting like
0: photosynthesis we all we know is such a fundamental thing for plants and then for the flow on throughout the environment what kinds of environments make a plant have to adapt to have different ways of photosynthesizing
1: So plants always are adapting to their environment. And so the the environments that we're particularly interested in are at the extremes. And so what we do um, in this study is we try and go out to areas that have very, very high soil fertility or very, very low fertility, and then compare the plants in those two different locations. So if you're examining a plant that's in a very, very low fertility soil, you would actually expect that they're going to be very um, adverse to spending a lot of nutrients because there isn't a lot of nutrients in the first place, right? And so Mm -hmm. they have to actually think about how they're investing those resources when the resources are in limited supply. And again, that's what brings us back to this idea of bringing economics together with ecology. And so if you are in an area that's very dry, You can't just spend all that water by opening your stomata in order to photosynthesize. You have to be very careful about what you choose. And so it's all about thinking, or or in this case, we're comparing plants in these really extreme environments.
0: What role do nutrients play in photosynthesis? Why might
1: that be something they have to consider? One of the key nutrients involved in photosynthesis is nitrogen. So nitrogen is a key component of all enzymes And there's one key enzyme involved in photosynthesis that's called rubisco. So when plants have more nitrogen in their leaves, they synthesize more of this enzyme rubisco. That allows them to speed up the rate of photosynthesis for less water loss. And so they're able to optimize photosynthesis by increasing the nitrogen in their leaves. The nitrogen, it's a key component of enzymes all throughout the plant. So not just in the photosynthetic enzyme rubisco, but in any enzyme that regulates a process in their body. Um, And so when plants are able to increase the rate of photosynthesis by having more nitrogen, then what happens is they can produce more carbohydrates, more sugars, and that goes to the other parts of the plant that need it. And so that they, they can actually grow over time. But first, they have to get the nitrogen into their leaves in order for them to photosynthesize more effectively. So the soil is affecting plants much more than we realize. It is. Yeah. And it's been really understudied. Unfortunately, we don't really know very much about how photosynthesis responds to soil, although we do know a lot about the role of climate. And so that's what I've been really trying to get at is what is the unique effect of the soil? Why do you think we've paid more attention
0: to climate as something that will affect which plants grow where or how an ecosystem uh, lives? Why do you think we've paid more attention to that than the soil?
1: There's one reason that's sort of my own opinion and then there's another reason. And so my, if from my own perspective, I think one of the main reasons is that the soil itself, the soil properties, um, it's really something that happens at a local scale Whereas Mm. if you think about climate, it's sort of a broader regional thing. Um, And so when we're thinking about soil properties, they're really, it's patchy, right? It's like this patchwork of different Mm. soil conditions. And it can change a lot from place to place. Whereas climate, again, it affects really broad regions. And so I think it's just, it's a question of scale and trying to think about how you can extrapolate information to these really broad scales when you're looking at something that tends to be quite patchy when you go from location to location. Um, And then the other reason I think it's mostly just there's a lot of interest in climate change at the moment. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of people are naturally very interested in understanding the role of climate and what's going to happen in the future as the climate changes. But it's important to remember that the climate and the soil are inextricably linked. And so what I mean by that is the water in the soil influences the availability of the nutrients. So whether plants can take up the nutrients in the soil depends on how wet the soil is in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so they're really tied to one another. Um, You have to consider water and temperature effects when you consider soil fertility effects. I had never considered the fact that that was so closely linked. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the main reasons why we think it's so important to get out there, this idea that we really need to be looking at the soil effects alongside the climate effects. And everything's kind of just affecting each other. Right. It's all connected, which, you know, I hate when people say, oh, it's just so complicated, but but it is. <laughs> yeah, it really, really is. It
0: is. And given this is such a complex topic, how did you end up working on something so specific?
1: Uh, so I actually started in a totally different... Um, a totally different space. So I studied out, uh, started out studying population dynamics. And so I was really interested to understand how different populations would respond to changes in light availability. And so I was working out in the rainforest of Costa Rica, studying these different plant populations, tracking them for years and actually watching them and trying to understand how if a plant population was in the dark versus in the light, um, would that population grow or shrink? And how was photosynthesis controlling the rate of expansion of those populations? Um, And then just, I eventually transitioned into more of the physiology space because I just really was fascinated by the entire process of photosynthesis and all of the complexities involved in it. And so I decided then to do a postdoctoral appointment studying photosynthesis across um, a range of native and invasive species in Hawaii. And then after that, I ended up at my current position now where I study photosynthesis, but with regards to soil and climate effects and native species specifically.
0: You've gotten to travel the world with it.
1: Yeah, it's been such a great opportunity and so exciting. I get to see Australia. I've been to so many cool spots in Australia that a lot of people... You know, I guess they might never go to some of those places because they're quite remote, um, mm-hmm. and you know, it, maybe there's nothing necessarily wow factor about these places because there aren't some, there isn't some great, um, how do you say, um, a landmark. Or anything Uh like that? Like
0: a tourist attraction? Yeah, yeah. There's not
1: necessarily a tourist attraction, um, but it's interesting just to me because I get to see all of these interesting landscapes and all of these Mm -hmm. species that I've never seen before in my life. That's such
0: a botanist thing or like a plant <laughs> scientist thing to be like, you know what? My travel destinations are based on the different landscapes that and the different so plants true. I want to see.
1: Oh God, that is so true. I, I've been dreaming about going to Daintree for years, for years. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's just crazy. What inspired you to work with plants? Oh, I think just from a really young age, I've known for years, I mean, since I was a child that I wanted to work with plants and that I wanted to be an ecologist specifically. And I think I was just really fortunate because um, my parents, both of them studied science, um, although they were more sort of medical background. Mm -hmm. Um, And we would just constantly go on hikes and going on trips and walking through forests and looking at all the different plants. And I think just from an early age, having that push was really helpful for me do you find yourself
0: trying to share your love of plants with everyone else
1: oh all the time (laughs) all the time I'm like a broken record
0: (laughs) (laughs) does it take long to go from studying plants in a whole different country in a whole different landscape where the plants are completely different to familiarizing yourself with the landscape here in Australia is that a challenge
1: it is it is one of the biggest challenges that I face and this is one of the things about the type of work that I do is um, I can learn all of the species in one location but then every couple of years you end up moving to a new location because the project ends you Mm. know and then you have to learn all about the ecology and the background of that new place that you're in
0: and so much more to learn
1: Yeah, exactly. And again, it's, I mean, as you mentioned before, an opportunity to see new places and experience new things um, and go to regions that, you know, I might never have a chance to go to otherwise. Kind of changes your whole perspective
0: on the, on a place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think knowing a little bit about the background, the ecological history of a place is really important and powerful um, because it just tells you something about how that place might respond in the future as well.
0: Is that something that motivates you, the thought of trying to solve problems and think about issues of the future?
1: Uh, I think yes and no. I feel that it's important to have a strong understanding of how plants have evolved and how they've mm. gotten to where they are now. But that at the same time, that really informs where they're going in the future. And so I feel that we really need to have an approach where we combine those things. We, we look at what they've done in the past to understand what they're going to do in the future. Um, you know, but at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, I, I don't necessarily prefer to just look at things in the lab. I'd really, I think it's a very, very useful and more realistic to look at what they're doing in their own environment.
0: Pint of Science is a two week festival running until the 28th of May with heaps of online events that showcase all different aspects of science. Scientists like Andrea get involved by talking about their research at events, talks, quiz nights, interviews, podcasts, and so much more. But what I was interested in is why someone might choose to get involved with these kinds of events.
1: For me, this is an opportunity, an avenue to reach a really, really broad audience of people and inspire them and maybe spark some curiosity in them with regards to science and so all aspects of science, you know, I guess also just what's currently being done, not just what's been done in the past. I think it's a really exciting opportunity to do that. What made you decide to get involved? Well, I guess the, the main thing for me is that I have a really long history of being involved in science communication and science education, and I've done lots of events, but only in my local community. And so mm-hmm. I thought this was a really great opportunity to just get to a broader audience um, and maybe just to kind of touch on some some things that I've been thinking about um, in my own work and how they relate to the broader public. Um, and so what might, you know, a, a lay person, for example, think about the type of work that I'm doing? And so, mm. you know, what is the application for them?
0: What's normally a go-to when you're talking about your research? How do you go, this is what, how I'm going to relate it to you, someone completely mm. unrelated
1: Well, I I think one of the easiest go-to's is more along the lines of the climate effect and less about the soil Mm -hmm. fertility. It's a lot easier for people to think about the recent droughts that we've had and, you know, Mm -hmm. how horrible they've been and just seeing all of the plants dying around us. And so part of the work that I'm doing, again, it's understanding how plants have adapted to um, the climate as well as the soil But that's going to help us to understand what they're going to do in the future if the climate becomes more severe, if the droughts become more severe. Um, And that's really, I think, something just to hit home about is that um, we really need to understand much better this very fundamental process of plants. You know, it's it seems like we should already know all of this, but we really don't. Mm. Um, And this is just one of those really, really basic things that we still have to nail down.
0: Science communication is becoming you know, increasingly popular within the science space. Lots of people want to share their research and lots of people want to engage with an audience that aren't just their peers. What do you think is so attractive about science communication?
1: Um, hmm, That's a good question. So for me, I think the main thing is that I feel that scientists should be able to communicate effectively what they're doing to a larger audience and so that's the main thing that I'm getting out of it as a scientist mm. is that I want to challenge myself to be able to explain these concepts to a layperson, mm. so that they can really understand the value of what I'm doing. And I think it's important, you know, also just from an economic perspective, like to understand where all of this funding that we're getting, you know, what yeah. is it going towards? What are we getting out of it? What is the greater good that's coming from all of this? And being able to explain it in like a rational way that makes sense to the average person, I think it's really important.
0: What are some of the challenges when you're trying to break down such a complex and in-depth topic?
1: Well, I think one of the main ones for the type of work that I do is whether or not people kind of just remember photosynthesis from when they were learning it in school, you know, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't and that's fine. You know, we can still talk about um, the idea that plants have to just be careful with how they're investing their resources in the same way that people do. Right. We can't expend all of our energy on one task. We have to choose, pick and choose what we do. Um, And plants are exactly the same. And the choices that they make, you know, really determine whether they can grow and survive, which Mm -hmm. is something that affects all of us. Right. Because all of us interact with plants you know, from the food we eat to the clothing we wear. And so just understanding that people and plants, you know, they have this common thread that unites them.
0: What are some of the outcomes that you're hoping to achieve with the research that you're doing?
1: So one of the main goals from this line of work is to be able to say whether or not plants are actually optimizing photosynthesis. Um, And so we have this really strong conceptual background, this theory that we're testing with this data set right? Um, and so by building this really large data set, we're going to be able to test these questions and test the theory and then get out actually from that, I guess, to say with some certainty that plants in are f- optimizing photosynthesis and what are the key drivers that they're responding mm-hmm. to. Um, and so, for example, is it soil fertility or is it the temperature or is it the rainfall that's driving that shift in their investment strategy which one is it that's the most important because that's the one we really should be focusing on if we're going to be looking for you know ways to improve conservation of those species for example when you're out in the field and
0: you're testing for things like rate of gas exchange or trying to just basically assess how how the photosynthesis is going, what's that actually like? What's that process like? If you got to carry around a whole bunch of equipment?
1: Yes, it's awful. (laughs) It's it's just so much, it's just so much equipment. Um, Yeah, so the way the machine actually works is we have, um, it's a machine that inside of it, it has an infrared gas analyzer. And so what it does is it shoots infrared radiation out into this chamber. And then it just measures whatever gets bounced back or taken up that's inside of the chamber. Um, And from there, you know, we can determine how much carbon dioxide is in the chamber and how much water is in the chamber. And then if you track that over time, it actually tells you the rate of photosynthesis. So that's the actual way that the machine works. Um, Mm. And then we take this out with us to the forest we put the leaf inside of the chamber and we just let it sit there for a few minutes. It really doesn't take very long. Um, And then we take that leaf and we bring it back to the lab and we grind it up and we actually measure how much nitrogen is in that leaf.
0: What is your favourite thing about studying plants?
1: I guess I'm always surprised by all of the different ways that they can adapt to their environment. And I feel like I'm constantly learning new information about all of the ways that they can change, for example, the shape of their leaves, the photosynthesis in their leaves, the hydraulics in their stem. I mean, plants are actually really, really clever. And I'm just constantly surprised by all of the things that they can do. You know, we think, or a lot of people think that they're just kind of sitting there idly, allowing things to happen to them, but, but they're really not. They're responding quite strongly to what's going on around them.
0: I completely agree. And then they're like stuck in an environment that they have to
1: learn to thrive in. Right. I mean, they really have no other choice, right? Because a lot of them, they can't move from where they are, right? Mm -hmm. Unless they send their um, seeds, for example, to a different location, they're pretty much stuck there. And so they have to adapt to whatever they've been given in that moment. And I think that's part of what drives all of this incredible flexibility that we see. To finish up, I'd
0: love to know, what do you hope to achieve throughout all of your research personally? What is your dream to get to research?
1: Mm. Well, there is a common thread that unites all of the work I've done up until this point. And I think that common thread is probably going to carry me through to the rest of my career. Um, And my goal is essentially to understand how plants are adapting to stress. And how are they adapting to these really extreme environments? Um, And so it's understanding all of the different ways that they do that by studying how they adapt to light, how they adapt to water, how they adapt to the soil properties and bringing all of that information together in some sort of comprehensive framework would be one of my greatest goals. I think it's one of my greatest goals. Yeah.
0: What a brilliant goal to have. Finally, finally, I do have one. I just thought of another
1: question. Yeah, go for it. Uh, Finally,
0: if someone is going out for a bushwalk, let's say after this podcast, people are feeling inspired and they're like, I'm going to go and have a look at the plants in my neighborhood. What are some of the things that you think people should pay just a little bit more attention to while they're walking around and looking at the beautiful plants? Mm,
1: One of my favorite things is to smell the leaves. So crush them up. (laughs) So if you take a leaf and you crush them up, Often they have a really, really beautiful smell to them, and that's one of one of the best diagnostic features, actually, that we use as scientists to help us to identify plants. Um, and so, just looking at the leaves, feeling them, touching them, looking at them in the sunlight, really get to know your leaves. <laughs> it's, they're just they're really beautiful things, um, and they have all of these little intricate details if you look up close. I mean. The margins of the leaves sometimes have little teeth on them or there's little hairs on the leaves and just so many interesting things once you get up close and personal with them that I think people could be missing out on. So yeah, again, I would really encourage people to look closely and just smell them, just smell them. Some of them smell so good. (laughs) And I guess the thing to
0: remember as well is that all of those little things that you notice about a plant they're all for a
1: purpose, you know? Like we might right. not know the purpose yet, but it's, it's not exactly. just chance. Exactly, that is such a good point, right? And so that's, um, there's this whole field of study called functional ecology, which is exactly what you've just described, is there are all of these different things we can measure, but we don't necessarily know why they're there. You know, what mm. is the purpose of having those little hairs or having those little teeth on the leaves? We really don't know all of those answers to those questions, but we're hoping that, you know, we're getting there little by little, And just by going out and actually measuring them, you know, and measuring these very simple things across a whole bunch of different species, we're getting really close to answering this question. Thank you for listening to Branch Out. Pint of
0: Science Australia runs until the 28th of May online, so check out their website for more science podcasts and events. And, of course, you can catch up on Branch Out episodes online or on podcast apps anytime. We'll have more exciting new episodes of Branch Out coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to subscribe to stay up to date. I don't want to give away too many surprises, but you can expect to hear about some really interesting and diverse plant species, as well as some behind-the-scenes stories of how that plant research actually happens.